Creation seems to come out of imperfection. It seems to come out of a striving and uh, a frustration. And this is where I think language came from. I mean, it came from our desire to transcend our isolation and have some sort of connection with one another. And it had to be easy when it was just simple survival, like, you know, water, we came up with a sound for that. Or uh, saber-toothed tiger right behind you, we came up with a sound for that. But when it gets really interesting, I think, is when we use that same system of symbols to communicate all the abstract and intangible things that we're experiencing. What is frustration? Or what is anger or, or love? When I say love, the sound comes out of my mouth and it hits the other person's ear, travels through this Byzantine conduit in their brain, you know, through their memories of love or lack of love. And they register what I'm saying and they say, yes, they understand. But how do I know they understand? Because words are inert. They're just symbols. They're dead, you know? And, and so much of our experience is intangible. So much of what we perceive cannot be expressed. It's unspeakable. And yet, you know, when we communicate with one another and we, we feel that we have connected and we think that we're understood, I think we have a feeling of almost spiritual communion. And that feeling might be transient, but I think it's what we live for. If we're looking at the highlights of human development, 
have a look at the evolution of the organism and then at the development of its interaction with the environment. Evolution of the organism will begin with the evolution of life, proceed through uh, the hominid, coming to the evolution of mankind. Neanderthal Cormagnon Man. Now, interestingly, what you're looking at here are three strains biological, anthropological, cities, cultures, and culture, which is human expression. Now, what you've seen here is the evolution of populations, not so much the evolution of individuals. And in addition, if you look at the timescales that's involved here, two billion years for life, six million years for the hominid, hundred thousand years for mankind as we know, you're beginning to see the telescoping nature of the evolution of And then when you get to agriculture, when you get to scientific revolution and industrial revolution, you're looking at 10,000 years, 400 years, 150 years. You're seeing further telescoping of this evolutionary time. What that means is that as we go through the new evolution, it's going to telescope to the point we should be able to see it manifest itself within our lifetime, within a generation. The new evolution stems from information. In a sense, we two types of information, digital and analog. Digital is artificial intelligence. The analog results from molecular biology, the cloning of the organism, and you knit the two together with neurobiology. Before, under the old evolutionary paradigm, one would die and the other would grow and dominate. But under the new paradigm, they would exist as a mutually supported, non-competitive group, independent from the external. But what is interesting here is that evolution now becomes an individually centered process, emanating from the needs and the desires of the individual, and not an external process, a passive process, where the individual is just at the whim of the collective. So, you produce a neo-human, okay, with a new individuality, a new consciousness. But that's only the beginning of the evolutionary cycle, because as the next cycle proceeds, the input is now this new intelligence. As intelligence plus an intelligence, as ability plus an ability, the speed changes. Until what? Until you reach a crescendo, in a way, could be imagined as an almost instantaneous fulfillment of human. Human and neo-human potentially. It could be something totally different. It could be the amplification of the individual, the multiplication of individual existences, parallel existences. Now the individual no longer restricted by time and space. And the manifestations of this neo-human type of evolution, manifestations could be dramatically counterintuitive. That's the interesting part. The old evolution is cold, sterile, it's efficient, okay? And its manifestations of those social adaptation, you're talking about parasitism, dominance, morality, okay? War, predation. These will be subject to de-emphasis. These will be subject to de-evolution. New evolutionary paradigm will give us the human traits of truth, of loyalty, of justice, of freedom. These will be the manifestations of the new evolution. And that is what we would love to see. That would be nice.
outsider to the human community. He thinks to himself, I must be insane. What he fails to realize is that society has, just as he does, a vested interest in considerable losses and catastrophes. These wars, famines, floods, and quakes meet well-defined needs. Man wants chaos. In fact, he's gotta have it. Depression, strife, riots, murder, all this dread. We're irresistibly drawn to that almost orgiastic state created out of death and destruction. It's in all of us. We revel in it. Sure, the media tries to put a sad face on these things, painting them up as great human tragedies. But we all know the function of the media has never been to eliminate the evils of the world. No. Their job is to persuade us to accept those evils and get used to living with them. The powers that be want us to be passive observers. Hey, you got a match?
about something you said. Yeah. About how you often feel like you're observing your life from the perspective of an old woman about to die. Remember that? Yeah. I still feel that way sometimes. Like I'm looking back on my life. Like my waking life is her memories. Exactly. I, I heard that Tim Leary said as he was dying that he was looking forward to the moment when his body was dead, but his brain was still alive. You know, they say that there's still six to 12 minutes of brain activity after everything else is shut down. And the second of dream consciousness, right? Well, that's infinitely longer than a waking second. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, definitely. For example, I wake up and it's day 12, and then I go back to sleep. Exactly, so then six to 12 minutes, right, of brain activity. That could be your whole life. I mean, you are that woman looking back over everything. Okay, so what if I am, then what do you do? Whatever I am right now. I mean, yeah, maybe I only exist in your mind. Still just as real as anything else. Yeah. I've been thinking also about something you said. Just about reincarnation and where all the new souls come from over time. Everybody always say that they've been the reincarnation of Cleopatra or Alexander the Great. I always want to tell them they were probably some dumb fuck like everybody else. I mean, it's impossible. Think about it. The world population has doubled in the past 40 years, right? So if you really believe in that ego thing of one eternal soul, uh -huh. Then you have only 50% chance of your soul being over 40. And for it to be over 150 years old, then it's only one out of six. Alright, so what are you saying? Reincarnation doesn't exist? Is that we're all young souls? Like we're, what, half of us are first round humans? No, no. Wait, wait. No, what I'm trying to say is that somehow I believe reincarnation is just a, a poetic expression of what collective memory really is. There was this article by this biochemist I read not long ago. He was talking about how when a member of a species is born, it has a billion years of memory to draw on. And this is where we inherit our instincts. It's like there's um, this whole telepathic thing going on that we're all a part of, whether we're conscious of it or not. I mean, that would explain why there's all these, you know, seemingly spontaneous worldwide innovative leaps in science and the arts. You know, like, the same results popping up everywhere, you know, independent of each other. Some guy on a computer, he figures something out, and then almost simultaneously, a bunch of other people all over the world figure out the same thing. They did this study, they isolated a group of people over time and they, you know, monitored their abilities to cross right? And in relation to the general population, they seemed to a day old crossword, one that had already been answered by thousands of other people, right? And their scores were dramatically by 20%. So it's like once the answers are out there, people can pick up. It's like we're all telepathically sharing our experiences.
can achieve a prosperous future within the safe operating space if we move simultaneously and collaborating on a global level from local to global scale in transformative options which build resilience on a finite planet. Thank you. process is actually governed by physical law, chemical laws, electrical laws, and so on. So now it starts to look like the Big Bang set up the initial conditions, and the whole rest of our history, the whole rest of human history before, is really just sort of playing out of subatomic particles according to these basic fundamental physical laws. We think we're special, we think we have some kind of special dignity, but that now comes under threat, and that's really challenged by this picture. So you might be saying, well, wait a minute, what about quantum mechanics? I know enough contemporary physical theory to know it's not really like that. It's, it's really a probabilistic theory. There's room, it's loose, it's not deterministic. And that's going to enable us to understand free will. But if you look at the details, it's not really going to help because what happens is you have some very small quantum particles and their behavior is apparently a bit random. They sort of swerve. Their behavior is absurd in the sense that it's unpredictable and we can't understand it based on anything that came before. It just does something out of the blue according to a probabilistic framework. But is that going to help with freedom? I mean, should our freedom just be a matter of probabilities, just some random swerving in a chaotic system? That starts to seem like it's worse. I'd rather be a gear in a big deterministic physical machine than just some random swerving. So we can't just ignore the problem. We have to find room in our contemporary worldview for persons with all that entails, not just bodies, but persons. And that means trying to solve the problem of freedom, finding room for choice and responsibility, and trying to understand
with the structure. I'm concerned with the systems of control. Those that control my life and those that seek to control it even more! I want freedom! That's what I want! And that's what you should want! It's up to each and every one of us to turn with you to some of the greed, the hate, the envy, and yes, the insecurity. Because that is the central mode of control. Make us feel pathetic and small. So we'll willingly give up our sovereignty, our liberty, our destiny. We have got to realize we're being conditioned on a mass scale. Start challenging this corporate slave state. The 21st century is going to be a new century. Not the century of slavery, not the century of lies and significant moment in history. Those moments, those what might call liminal, limit, frontier, edge zone experiences are actually now becoming the norm. These multiplicities and distinctions and differences that have given great difficulty to the old mind are actually through entering into their very essence, tasting and feeling their uniqueness. One might make a breakthrough to that common And so the main character is this new mind, greater, greater mind, a mind that yet is to be. And when we are the 
then you obviously enter into that mode, you can see a radical subjectivity, radical attunement to individuality and uniqueness to that the mind opens itself to the So the story is a story of the The moment is not just a passing empty, nothing. Yet, this is in, in the way in which this secret passage happened. Yes, it's empty with such fullness.
tell the Greeks 3,000 years ago were just as advanced as we are. So what are these barriers that keep people from reaching anywhere near their real potential? The answer to that can be found in another question. It's this. Which is the most universal human characteristic? Fear or faith? relationship to the universe. I contemplate relationships of my various selves to one another. Hey, how's it going? You know, they say that dreams are real only as long as they last. Couldn't you say the same thing about life? See, there's a lot of us that are out there that are mapping that mind-body relationship, dreams. We're called the explorers of the dream world. Really, it's just about the two opposing states of consciousness, which don't really oppose at all. See, in the waking world, the neural system inhibits the activation of the vividness of memories. And this makes evolutionary sense. See, it'd be maladaptive for the perceptual image of a predator to be mistaken for the memory of one, and vice versa. If the memory of a predator conjured up a perceptual image, we'd be running off to the bathroom every time we had a scary thought. So you have these serotonic neurons that inhibit hallucinations, that they themselves are inhibited during REM sleep. See, this allows dreams to appear real while preventing competition from other perceptual processes. This is why dreams are mistaken for reality. To the functional system of neural activity that creates our world, there is no difference between dreaming of perception and action and actually the waking perception and action.
to find their answers. Although it will seem difficult, the rewards will be great. Exercise your human mind as fully as possible, knowing it is only an exercise. Build beautiful artifacts, solve problems, explore the secrets of the physical universe. Savor the input from all the senses, fill the joy and sorrow, the laughter, the empathy, compassion, and tuck the emotional memory in your travel bag. I remember where I came from and how I became a human, why I hung around, and now my final departure schedule. This way out, escaping the afternoon. Oh, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's postman for
Yeah. Well, categories are so fucking ridiculous anyways, you know. Excuse me. Excuse me. Hey. Could we do that again? I know we haven't met, but I don't want to be an aunt, you know? I mean, it's like we go through life with our antennas bouncing off one another continuously on ant autopilot with nothing really human required of us. Stop, go, walk here, drive there. All action basically for survival, all communication simply to keep this ant colony buzzing along in an efficient, polite manner. Here's your change. Paper or plastic? Credit or debit? What catch up with that? I don't want a straw. I want real human moments. I want to see you. I want you to see me. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to be a fan, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't want to be an ant either. this idea of two people meeting on a road and instead of just uh, passing and glancing away they decide to accept what he calls the confrontation between their souls like um, like freeing the brave reckless gods within us all and then it's like we have met It's 
mostly just me dealing with a lot of people who are exposing me to information and ideas that seem vaguely familiar, but at the same time, it's all very alien to me. I'm not hearing a, an objective, rational world. I've been like flying around. It's more like a, this whole spectrum of awareness, like uh, the lucidity waivers. Like, right now, I know that I'm dreaming, right? I've been worried what you're talking about. And this is the most in myself and in my thoughts that I've been so far. I'm talking about being in a dream. But I'm being very It's something that I don't really have any precedent for. It's, it's totally Like your soap opera, for example. That's a really cool idea. I didn't come up with that. It's like something outside of myself, like something like transmitted to me externally. I don't know what this is. We seem to think we're so limited by the world and, and the confines, but we're really just creating them. I mean, you, you keep trying to figure it out, but it seems like now that you know that what you're doing is dreaming, you can do whatever you want to. You're uh, dreaming, but you're awake. You have um, so many options. That's what life is about.
magical. I loved all the people dealing with all the contradictory impulses. That's what I love the most, connecting with the people. Looking back, that's all that really mattered.
Kierkegaard's last words were, sweep me up. Thank <laughs> you.
like the guy, guy with the hat. Game you're riding is his car boat thing, and you were in the back seat with him. Spot that you give him directions to let me off at. I get out, ended up getting hit by a car, but then I just woke up because I was dreaming, and later than that, I found out that I was still dreaming, dreaming that I'd woken up. Oh, yeah, those are called false awakenings. Yeah, but I'm still in it now. I, I can't get out of it. It's been going on forever. I keep waking up, but, but I'm just waking up into another dream. And I'm starting to get creeped out, too. Like, Talking to dead people, this woman on TVs telling me about how death is this dream time that exists outside of life. I mean, I'm starting to think that I'm dead. I'm gonna tell you about a dream moment too. I know that's, you know, when someone says that, that's usually you're in for a very boring next few minutes. And you might be, but it sounds like, you know, what else you gonna do, right? Anyway, I read this essay by Philip K. Dick. What, you read it in your dream? No, no, I read it before the dream. It was the preamble to the dream. It was about that book, uh, Flow My Tears of Policeman's Do you know that one? Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he won an award for that one. Right, right, that's the one he wrote really fast. It just, like, flowed right out of him. He felt he was sort of channeling it or something. But anyway, about four years after it was published, he was at this party, and he met this woman who had the same name as the woman character in the book. And she had a boyfriend with the same name as the boyfriend character in the book. And she was having an affair with this guy, you know, the chief of police. And he had the same name as the chief of police in his book. So she's telling him every, you know, all this stuff from her life, and everything she's saying is right out of his book. So that's really freaking him out, but you know, what can he do? And then shortly after that, he was going to mail a letter, and he saw this kind of um, you know, dangerous, shady-looking guy standing by his car. But instead of avoiding him, which he you know, said he usually would have done, he just walked right up to him and said, can I help you? And the guy said, yeah, I ran out of gas. So he pulls out his wallet and he hands him some money, which he says he you know, never would have done. And then he gets home and he thinks, well, wait a second. This guy, you know, he can't get to a gas station. He's out of gas. So he gets back in his car, goes, finds the guy, takes him to the gas station. And as he's pulling up at the gas station, he realizes, hey, this is in my book too. This exact station, this exact guy, everything. So this whole episode is it's kind of creepy, right? And he's telling his priest about it, you know, describing how he wrote this book, and then four years later, all these things happened to him. And as he's telling it to him, the priest says, that's the book of Acts. You're describing the book of Acts. He's like, I've never read the book of Acts. So he, you know, goes home and reads the book of Acts, and it's like, you know, uncanny. You know, even the characters' names are the same as in the Bible. And the Book of Acts takes place in 50 AD when it was written, supposedly. So Philip K. Dick had this theory that time was an illusion and that we were all actually in 50 AD. And the reason he had written this book was that he had somehow momentarily punctured through this illusion, this veil of time. And what he had seen there was what was going on in the Book of Acts. And he was really into uh, Gnosticism and this idea that this demiurge or demon had created this illusion of time to make us forget you know, that Christ was about to return and the kingdom of God was about to arrive. And that we're all in 50 AD and there's someone trying to make us forget, you know, that, you know, God is imminent. And that's what time is. That's what all of history is. It's just kind of this continuous, um, you know, daydream or distraction. And so I read that and I was like, well, that's weird. 
And then that night, I had a dream, and there was this guy in the dream who was supposed to be a psychic, but I was skeptical. I was like, yeah, he's not really a psychic, and I'm just thinking to myself. And then suddenly, I start floating, like levitating up to the ceiling. And as I almost go through the roof, I'm like, okay, Mr. Psychic, I, I believe you. You're a psychic. Put me down, please. And I float down, and as my feet touch the ground, the psychic turns into this woman in a green dress. And this woman is Lady Gregory. Now, Lady Gregory was Yates' patron, this you know, Irish person. And though I'd, I'd never seen her image, I was just sure that this was the face of Lady Gregory. So walking along, Lady Gregory turns to me and says, let me explain to you the nature of the universe. Now, Philip K. Dick is right about time, but he's wrong that it's 50 AD. Actually, there's only one instant, and it's right now, and it's eternity. And it's an instant in which God is posing a question and that question is basically, do you want to, you know, be one with eternity? Do you want to be in heaven? And we're all saying, And so time is actually just this constant saying no to God's invitation. I mean, that's what time is. I mean, and it's no more 50 AD than it's 2001, you know? I mean, there's just this one instant, and that's what we're always in. And then she tells me that actually this is the narrative of everyone's life that, you know, behind the phenomenal difference, there is but one story. And that's the story of moving from the no to the yes. All of life is like, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. And ultimately it's, yes, I give in. Yes, I accept. Yes, I embrace. I mean, that's the journey. I mean, everyone gets to the yes in the end, right? All right. So we continue walking. And uh, my dog runs over to me, and so I'm petting him, really happy to see him now. He's been dead for years. So I'm, I'm petting him, and I realize there's this kind of gross, oozing stuff coming out of his stomach. And I look over at uh, Lady Gregory, and she sort of coughs. She's like, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> there's vomit, like dribbling down her chin, and it smells really bad. And I, I think, well, wait a second, that's not just the smell of vomit, which is, you know, it's stronger, but that's the smell of, like, dead person vomit. So it's like double now. And I realized I'm actually in the land of the dead. And everyone around me was dead. My dog had been dead over 10 years. Lady Gregory had been dead a lot longer than that. When I finally woke up, I was like, whoa, that wasn't a dream. That was a visitation to this real place, the land of the dead. So what happened? I mean, how did you finally get out of it? Oh, man, it was just like one of those, like, life-altering experiences. I mean, I, I could never really look at the world the same way again after that. Like, how did you, how did you finally get out of the dream? See, that's why I'm like, I'm trapped. I keep, I keep thinking that I'm waking up, but I'm still in a dream. It seems like it's going on forever. I can't get out of it. I want to wake up for real. How do you really wake up? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not very good at that anymore. But, um... If that's what you're thinking, I mean, you probably should. I mean, you know, if you can wake up, you should. Because, you know, someday, you know, you won't be able to. So just, um, but it's easy. You know, just, just, 